The Alka Indians were a much feared warring tribe of people living deep in the jungles. Most people outside of Ecuador had never heard of them. But Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, and Roger Yodarian had them at the top of their prayer list. They had spent several weeks flying over the area in a small plane broadcasting words of friendship in the Alka language from a battery-operated speaker. They had dropped several gifts from the plane like buttons and a machete and a kettle along with the photographs of the five men. And the Alcas had responded by sending back a parrot and feathered headdresses in the drop bucket. And so they decided it was time for them to take the next step toward reaching the Alca people with the gospel. And so they landed their small plane on the only place they could find, a little clearing they named Palm Beach. And they built a tree shelter. And on Sunday, January 8th, 1956, the five men sang and prayed together on that desolate, sandy beach along the Cure River in northern Ecuador. And at 12.30 p.m., they radioed their wives that they expected to make contact with the Alcas by mid-afternoon. And that they would radio again at 4.30. Their wives silently held around the radio at 4.30, but they heard no message. A search and rescue team went in shortly after to find that all five men had been killed with wooden lances and machetes. And the news of these 20th century martyrs was reported around the world. To many, their death seemed a senseless tragedy. Five young women were left without husbands, and their children were left fatherless. But that's not the end of the story. In 1959, Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint went to live with the Alka people, many of whom had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And Elizabeth Elliot went on to write books like Through Gates of Splendor and Shadow of the Almighty that have challenged many to a life of service to God. And in them, she addresses that very issue. She says, to the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives. But God has his plan and purpose in all things. There were those whose lives were changed by what happened on Palm Beach. And then she goes on to chronicle example after example of lives that were changed. She also records the words of Nate Saint as he answered that question beforehand. He wrote, as we weigh the future and seek the will of God, does it seem right that we should hazard our lives for just a few savages? As we ask ourselves this question, we realize that it is not the call of the needy thousands. Rather, it is the simple intimation of the prophetic word that there shall be some from every tribe in his presence in the last days. And in our hearts, we feel that it is pleasing to him that we should interest ourselves in making an opening into the Alka prison for Christ. And so he and the four others gave their lives for that cause. 1900 years earlier, Stephen set the pattern when he became the very first Christian martyr. 
And at first glance, Stephen's death may seem pointless as well. But this morning, as we revisit that event, I think it will become clear to us that Stephen's death impacted the lives of many in the first century. And I pray that today his life may impact us as well. The death of Stephen is a remarkable story. It's a murder scene, but it's anything like a murder scene because Stephen isn't running and Stephen isn't fighting back and Stephen isn't cursing his murderers. In fact, at every stage in the process, we find ourselves marveling at his reaction. And to help us capture that, I'd like to present the story this morning as a series of contrasts. I see five contrasts in these verses. Number one is the contrast between being filled with anger and being filled with the Spirit. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he, Stephen. Now the Sanhedrin probably listened with interest to the early part of Stephen's sermon. When he talked about the call of Abraham, I imagine some of them might have even nodded in approval. But as he went on to talk about Israel's rejection of Joseph and Israel's rejection of Moses, his drift became increasingly clear. Until when he gets to verse 51, he just openly castigates them. He tells them that they have rejected their Messiah and they have killed their Messiah. And as a result, when they heard this, we're told that they were cut to the quick. That word means they were sawn in two. Stephen's words had ripped apart the veneer of their false spirituality. And that's what the Word of God does. It cuts us open. Back in Acts chapter 2, Peter was preaching, and we read in verse 37, that they were pierced to the heart. And as a result, they said, brethren, what shall we do? The Sanhedrin were listening to the apostles in Acts chapter 5 and verse 33, and there we read that they were cut to the quick. And what was their response? It says they were intending to slay them. And now in Acts chapter 7, once again they are cut to the quick. And what's their response? They began gnashing their teeth at him. There are two possible reactions when one is cut open by the word of God. One is brokenness, like the people in Acts chapter 2 who said, what shall we do? And the other is hardness, like the Sanhedrin who became angry and resentful. I can't determine how a person is going to react. I can only be faithful to clearly present the gospel so that God by his spirit can use it to cut people to the quick. But let me say this. If people aren't reacting one of those two ways, then I need to examine myself to see whether or not I am really telling them the truth. I like the way Jim Elliott put it. He said, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me be 
Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another facing Christ in me. Stephen was a fork in the road. The Sanhedrin had to turn one way or another. And what they did was they turned on Stephen and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Did you ever gnash your teeth at anyone? That's when you're so angry that you say, Why you... It's the expression of someone who is filled with anger. And the Sanhedrin were filled with anger at Stephen. And their anger was actually just a preview of what they were going to experience for all eternity. Because the most common way that Jesus described hell was as a place that was filled with weeping and what? Gnashing of teeth. Hell is not just a place that has physical torment. It is a place that has emotional torment. It's endless sorrow, weeping. And it's endless anger, gnashing of teeth. And in contrast to that, verse 55 says that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Amid the storm of fury that was howling around him, Stephen remained calm and peaceful because he was completely surrendered to the Spirit of God. And what I really like about Stephen is that he didn't wait until the moment of crisis to get filled with the Spirit. That was a characteristic of his life. Back in chapter 6 and verse 5, we read that he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Being full of the Holy Spirit was a characterization of Stephen. Because Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit as a pattern for his life, he did not have to make any adjustments when it came time to die. I wonder if someone came in here today and decided he was going to kill everyone who was a believer in Jesus Christ, how many of us would have to say, could you wait just a moment? I've got a few issues with God I need to deal with first. See, that was not the case with Stephen. He was filled with the Spirit as he walked through life. When it came time for him to face martyrdom, he was ready. Same could be said for Jim Elliott. He was only 28 years old when he died on that beach in Ecuador. But he had prepared himself years earlier. As a student at Wheaton College, he wrote these words. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. Am I ignitable? God, deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be a flame. But flame is transient, often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul, short life? And then he answered that question with these words. In me there dwells the spirit of the great short-lived whose zeal for God's house consumed him. Second contrast in these verses is between spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. 
The rest of verse 55 reads, He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 that we are to keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And in the midst of his circumstances, that's exactly what Stephen was doing. He was not looking at their gnashing teeth. He was gazing into heaven. And as he looked intently, the heavens opened up. Or at least Stephen's eyes opened up so that he was able to look into heaven. Not many people on earth have had that privilege. Isaiah and Ezekiel did so in the Old Testament. Paul and John did so in the New Testament. And Stephen is part of that select company. Stephen got to see in the heaven. And what did he see? But says he saw the glory of God. Like Moses, the one in the Old Testament whose face shone, he got to see the Shekinah glory. But that's not all he saw. He saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at his right hand. Everywhere in Scripture, Jesus is described in heaven. He's described as seated at the right hand of God, except here. Here we're told that he's standing. The reason he's seated in heaven is explained to us in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 11, 11 and 12. It says there that the, temp, the, the priests in the temple always stand because their job is never done. Jesus is sitting because he's finished. He has accomplished the work of redemption. But on this occasion, he's standing. Now why is he standing? Well, we're not told, but let me suggest two possible reasons. One reason he may be standing is because one of his own is about to suffer for him. And I like that idea. Jesus is sitting on his throne, and he knows that Stephen is about to lay down his life for Jesus' name, and out of concern, he rises on that occasion. Second reason is that maybe he's standing to welcome Stephen home to heaven. I like that idea. You know, Peter said in 2 Peter 1.11 that some Christians will get an abundant entrance into the eternal kingdom. And I can't think of a more abundant entrance than to have Jesus stand up when I arrive. We're not told, but I don't imagine that he stood up for Ananias and Sapphira. He did stand up for Stephen. And Stephen is so enamored by what he sees in heaven that he can't keep quiet about it. And so in verse 56, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The last time the Sanhedrin heard this phrase, the Son of Man, was several months earlier at another mock trial. The same high priest had asked Jesus the question, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said, You have said it yourself. 
But hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when the high priest heard those words, he tore his robe and said, He has blasphemed. Now Stephen stands before the same high priest, the same council, and Stephen says, Look, the Son of Man at the right hand of glory. And that was the final straw. And so verse 57 says, But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. In contrast to Stephen's spiritual sight, here is spiritual blindness. They don't want to hear any more truth. And so they cry out with a loud voice to drown out Stephen's, and they literally cover their ears. That's the way some people listen to the gospel. They cried out, they covered their ears, and it says they rushed upon him. That word rushed is used in Mark chapter 5 to describe the demon-possessed swine who ran into the Sea of Galilee. That's the way they rushed as Stephen, to put that in modern vernacular, the Sanhedrin lost it. They gave up all their dignity and propriety and they became a mad, howling, murderous mob. What a contrast. Stephen's spiritual sight and their spiritual blindness. Third contrast is between death and life. Verse 58, And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Was this an act of mob violence, or was this a legal execution? Well, technically, it's mob violence. And I say that for a couple reasons. Number one, because the Sanhedrin didn't have the authority to execute. They had said to Pilate in John 18, 31, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. And I say that for a second reason, and that is because of their actions. These are the actions of a lynching mob. They are gnashing their teeth, crying with a loud voice, covering their ears, rushing upon him. But through the fury of their anger, and even though they're breaking the Roman law, it's interesting that they're, they're careful to keep the law of the Old Testament. Because in Leviticus 24, 16, it says that blasphemers were to be stoned to death. And convinced that Stephen was a blasphemer, that was the means they were going to use. They weren't going to club him to death right there. They stoned him to death. And Leviticus 24, 14 says it was to take place outside the city. And so verse 58 says they drove him out. And then Deuteronomy 17, 7 says the witnesses were to throw the first stone. And so verse 58 says, it was the witnesses who laid their robes at the feet of Saul. Those would be the false witnesses mentioned back in chapter 6 and verse 13. Now this is the first mention of Saul in the New Testament. He would later become the Apostle Paul. 
and he will later become the dominant figure in the book of Acts after chapter 13. But here, he simply gets a cameo appearance. He's guarding the robes of those who stoned Stephen to death. But I think more importantly, he's got a front row seat. And he gets to see and hear everything that goes on. And one of the things he saw is described in verse 59. It says, And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As the stones were pummeling Stephen's body, he was praying. And if that prayer sounds familiar, it should. Because it's very similar to the prayer the Lord Jesus prayed on the cross. When he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The exception is that Jesus committed himself to the Father. Stephen commits himself to the Lord Jesus which is really a confirmation of the deity of the Lord Jesus because he considered the both to be equal. Now Stephen is dying, but he doesn't view this as the end. It's only the beginning because he is going into the presence of the Lord. And in scripture, there's never a delay between here and heaven. You will not find in scripture a holding place in between called purgatory, you will not find the idea of an unconscious state known as soul sleep. Instead, in Scripture, the teaching is that a believer leaves here and enters the presence of the Lord immediately. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Speaking about his death in Philippians 1.23, Paul said, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, for this is very much better. And to the thief on the cross, you'll remember that Jesus said, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Stephen got a quick answer to this prayer. He went immediately into the presence of the Lord. And so what the Sanhedrin called death really wasn't death at all. Which brings us to the fourth contrast. And that's the contrast between hate and love. Verse 60. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Up until now, he was standing. And now he drops to his knees. Not only because of the toll that the stones were taking on his body, but as you read the verse, it seems that he dropped to his knees because of the intensity of his prayer. Before he had prayed for himself, now he was praying for others. And again, this prayer echoes the prayer of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Stephen is praying for the forgiveness of his executioners. You know, in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, there's another fellow who was unjustly put to death for preaching the truth of God. His name is Zechariah. And as they stoned Zechariah to death, his last words, like Stephen's, were prayer. And that prayer is recorded in 2 Chronicles 24, 22, where it says, And as he died, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. 
Zechariah's dying prayer was for vengeance. Stephen's dying prayer was for forgiveness. Why the difference? Well, I think the answer is found in the fact that the kind of prayer Stephen prayed is only possible on this side of the cross. Only Christians can express this kind of love because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is in us. And then I love the last phrase in verse 60. It says, and having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen said his prayers and he fell asleep. Peacefully and calmly, he entered the presence of the Lord. The most common way death is described in the New Testament for believers is sleep. Why sleep? Because it's painless? Because it's temporary? Because it takes us from the weariness and the work and the consciousness of all the problems of life into the freshness of a new day. Stephen prayed and he fell asleep. And then Luke takes the camera, if you like, off of Stephen and he moves it over to Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. As Stephen was showing love to him and the others, Saul was showing hatred. He was applauding, he was cheering on Stephen's execution. Which brings us to the fifth contrast. And that's a contrast between scattering and sowing. Verse 1 continues, And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The death of Stephen was a catalyst for a whole storm of persecution. And it's interesting that prior to this, all the persecution was aimed at the apostles. Now with the death of Stephen, it's open season on the whole church. And so they are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The interesting exception is, we're told at the end of verse 1, except for the apostles. Why did they stay in Jerusalem? Obviously, they, they felt the Lord wanted them to stay there. If we look for reasons, we would have to say they intended for that to be their headquarters. They intended to shepherd those in the church who were still there. But I think there's another reason. And that is, I think, that they saw Jerusalem still as a mission field. And the reason I say that is accented in verse 2 where it says, And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Now, who were these devout men? Well, Luke uses that same phrase back in chapter 2 and verse 5 to describe pious Jews who were not yet believers. So I think his choice of this term here is telling us that these guys were not believers yet. Why did they bury Stephen? Obviously, they were friends of his. Maybe they were from the same Hellenistic synagogue. And not only did they bury Stephen, but it says they made loud lamentation over him. Mourning for an executed criminal was forbidden in the Mishnah. And yet these fellows not only mourned over him, 
they mourned loudly over him. Which shows us that though the leaders in Jerusalem had hardened their hearts, there were many in Jerusalem who were still open to the gospel. And so the apostles stayed there to continue their evangelistic efforts. Verse 3, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. The word ravaging is a word used in secular Jewish writings to describe the way a wild beast mangled its prey. And the picture here is of the fact that, that Saul got a little taste of blood in the case of Stephen, and now there's no stopping him. Now he's out of control. He's going into houses. He's dragging people to prison. He would later say in Acts 22:4, I persecuted them to the death. And in Acts 26:11, he tells us he kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Not only did he scatter them, but he continued to pursue them. And so Saul thought he was defeating the church by scattering them. But, notice verse 4, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. The believers who were scattered didn't go into Judea and Samaria and hide out. They went there preaching the word. And I think Stephen's death had something to do with that. They had to be saying, if Stephen wouldn't be silent, neither will we. Someone has said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And this is the very first example of that truth. Now don't be misled in verse 4 by the word preaching. doesn't mean to get behind a pulpit. There weren't any pulpits in Samaria. The Greek word is evangelizo which means to declare the good news. They went out declaring the good news. Who did? It says those who had been scattered. Who had been scattered? Verse 2 says it was all those in the church at Jerusalem except the apostles. That's interesting. It wasn't the apostles who went out preaching the gospel. It was everyone else. And I think we need to understand from this that in the early church, evangelism was everybody's job. Some had the gift of evangelism by, like Philip, but everyone did the work of evangelism. And so Satan's persecution promoted the very thing it was designed to destroy because the believers who were scattered went out sowing. Some might view Stephen's death as pointless, as they would view the death of those five missionaries in Ecuador. But when we see what God was doing, we realize that it resulted in the further spread of the gospel. And it stands as a challenge to others to give the Lord their all. And I trust that it has that impact on us today. The Lord may not call us all to be martyrs, but he does call us all to be living sacrifices. And sometimes it's harder to live for the Lord than it is to die for him. But if we will live for him, we'll be ready to die for him.
I'm going to ask that we stand and sing together one verse, the last verse of number 344 together. And however God has spoken to your heart this morning, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond as we sing. I'm only going to sing the last verse, one opportunity for you to respond to the Lord's calling to you today. Number 344, verse 3.